Hello, my name is Constanze Döner and I'm a hematologist at the Department of Internal Medicine at the University Hospital in Ulm, Germany. And since 2021, I am a member of the EHA Executive Board and the chair of the EHA Education Committee. And hi, I'm Antonio Almeida. I'm a hematologist in Lisbon in Portugal, where I'm head of department at Hospital de Luz. Um, and I have also been a member of EHA for the past 12 years, involved in various committees, especially in education. And it's really a great honor to be here today to talk about clinical trials with Connie. So my expertise and clinical trials experience is largely based on my role as an active member of the large German Austrian Acute Myeloid Leukemia Study Group, the AMLSG, as well as a board member of the German Study Group for Myeloproliferative Malignancies. And one major focus or interest of our study groups is to launch investigator-initiated clinical trials, that means academical trials, to offer patients early access to novel drugs and to gain novel insights into disease mechanisms by performing correlative science studies. Yes, Connie, and that's really interesting because I think in what you've just said comes another challenge for people who do trials. I live in Portugal, I work in Portugal, and we don't have large study groups like you. So I've been a principal investigator and a national investigator for many trials, both uh, pharma-related trials, we'll talk a bit more about that, and also investigator-initiated trials at the European level, but we don't have such a large collaborative group, and that does make some trials difficult in some areas of Europe or of the world even, when you don't have such driven collaborative groups. So it will be perfect to discuss all the different sites today together. What is the major focus of this podcast today? And as you all know, participation in clinical trials or even to conduct an own clinical trial is becoming more and more difficult due to an increasing number of complex requirements that must be in place. And in this podcast today, we both are going to discuss important issues on clinical studies, the current challenges and the impact of these challenges, as well as the relevant issues that could be changed in order to enable a more uncomplicated participation and conduction of clinical trials. And here we have, to we have learned also from the COVID studies that some of these complex processes can be carried out much uh, faster, more efficient, and with less effort. And the development for this podcast has been funded by EHA today. And to listen to other related materials, please visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. So we would like to start with an overview of the three main types of clinical trials, the investigator-initiated trials, then the pharma-sponsored trials, and the registry studies. And let's start with the investigator-initiated trials, the so-called IITs with intervention. So from a scientific academic point of view, these are the most interesting studies since they usually address important clinical questions that are scientifically oriented. And these IITs are often performed in parallel with scientific projects, that means correlative science studies. And the major aim of these studies is to improve existing treatment options for the patients, especially with new combinations or new indications for existing drugs. 
And these types of IITs are mainly phase three studies, which intend to get approval for a certain study drug. And the correlative science studies or projects within these studies are addressing relevant biological questions, like for example, the identification of predictive factors or specific patient subgroups, particularly benefiting from the treatment. So in IITs, the initiative does not come from the pharmaceutical industry, but from an independent investigator with the sponsor being usually an institute or a study group. And these studies are the most extensive ones in terms of effort. The sponsor is responsible for all areas of the study. That means the study idea, the study concept development, draft of the study protocol, case number calculation, as well as calculation of the budget, the source of financing, um, either via support of pharma industry or independent financing via a third party, the provision of the study medication, the contract between the sponsor and the pharmaceutical company, contacting potential trial centers um, or study groups for participation, creating trial center contracts, submission of the trial centers to the relevant authorities, the competent authorities, the so-called CAs. Just to mention the most important responsibilities beside many others. And for example, in Germany, um, this is the BFARM and the ethics committees and certain tasks, um, responsibilities can also be delegated, for example, to a clinical research organization that is called the CRO um, or to other collaborating uh, partners. And just to, to, to mention this, to get an IIT started takes approximately two to three years. Yeah, and it's really hard work, isn't it, Constance? I mean, we, yeah. we, we totally agree, and I think everybody would agree, these are the studies that really address the questions that we have as clinicians and that really address them in a much freer way than sometimes what we see in pharma-sponsored trials. Now, this is nothing against pharma-sponsored trials, but obviously when we have a pharma-sponsored trial, the pharma company is the sponsor. And this means that these trials can include all kinds of studies from phase one to three. They can go from phase one and two dose finding and safety studies to phase three, which really have the intention to get approval of a novel drug or a new indication and to compare it to what is the standard now. In addition to these registration studies, Pharma also has observational trials in post-authorization safety studies, so-called PASS studies, and phase four application observation studies to collect safety data. So these phase four studies are usually required by the authorities after the approval of the drug, when additional information on safety is needed. And these studies are mainly associated with a huge documentation effort, but you also need a contract there. So they're not comparative, but you need to be linked in. Now, pharma studies are obviously important. Pharma is, are the ones who develop the drugs and need to get them out there for us to use them. And for that reason, the studies are very focused on that objective, which is de drug development and getting drugs out. Um, so when we look at the types of studies they do, in phase three trials, they have, for regulatory purposes and in, 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 for these very reasons of wanting to register a drug, 
they, the pharma company or a clinical research organization, which you'll know as CRO, will contact the study center. If the center wants to participate, they have to sign a confidentiality agreement. They receive the synopsis, more information about the study, alongside a feasibility questionnaire, which basically assesses whether the center will include enough patients and has the infrastructure and the both in terms of human resources and equipment that to fill in with the timelines. Um, once this sort of recruitment process has gone out, the centers will be selected by the pharma company or the CRO. And then if your center is selected, you will receive the contract with all the submission documents that are needed, such as GCP training for the local PI and the sub-investigators, CVs, documents on the infrastructure, labs, logistics, etc. And with this draft contract, you'll also get a budget, which is used to be specified by the company and is not really flexible. So it does mean that all the costs involved in the trial are covered, but doesn't necessarily mean that all the costs involved in the whole management of the process will be covered. This budget is often the same across countries. And so some countries where costs are higher will have under budgeting compared to other countries where costs are lower. The budget also involves a lot of parties and departments, such as radiology or cardiology or the pharmacy uh, or the center for research. And sometimes it has to be negotiated. And more departments and institutions are involved in the trial, the more complex this process is. So this does mean that even though a lot of the groundwork is done by the pharma company and the CRO, there is still a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of negotiating done on the side of the investigators to get these trials up and running. Yeah, you, you nicely described that these pharma-sponsored trials are less flexible in comparison to the IITs. And I think this is also true for the content, for the protocol, and we are getting involved normally at the very, very late stage in these in this trials. And we'll, we will come back to this later, um, Antonio, I think. Yeah, very important point. Yeah, but let's talk about another very important type of, um, of study. And this is um, um, the registry study, which is becoming more and more attractive from many point of views because um, um, here we are generating real world data. So for these registry studies, the sponsor can be both an academic institution or a pharmaceutical company. And the major focus of these registry studies is to collect long-term data on clinical features, biological profiles, on treatment um, of a defined disease, as well as outcome data. And data from these studies are, as I already mentioned, real-world data. And in particular, data on rare malignant hematologic diseases will be highly informative, as well as long-term data from patients with chronic hematologic malignancies. And these registry studies allow the collection of large patient data sets, as well as biosamples, and thus are of great interest also for pharma companies to address important questions with regard to the ongoing therapy modalities, co-medication, or therapy indication. So if um, a register study is um, uh, conducted by an academic sponsor, the competent authorities are usually 
are usually not involved in the approval process since these studies in contrast to the um, IITs do not include an investigational medical product, the so-called IMP, and thus no investigator brochure um, or related documents that would have to be reviewed and approved are needed. And for the registry studies, the most important document is the patient information, the patient informed consent, which is carefully reviewed by the local ethic committee with the intention for sure to protect the patient's interest. However, um, conducting a registry trial also requires a concept, a protocol, and then a case report form, the patient information, a budget for funding, and much more. And the major difficulty for the academic centers is, and this is also true for the IITs, that less or no funding programs, public funding programs are available. And for the participating centers, the effort to participate in such a registry study is relatively high while the budget for documentation is low. And the effort is becoming even greater if additional biobanking is performed as part of the registry study. However, I think it is very important to mention that the scientific idea behind the study um, is in the foreground of this registry studies. So yeah, and indeed, if, if I could just add there, Connie, because yeah. I think more and more we see in, uh, in congresses and in papers that we read what is called real world data. And the real world data basically comes from these registry studies mostly. And, and it is increasingly having a high profile and helping us in decisions. So even though registry trials very often are a little bit looked down upon because they don't have intervention and because they don't have randomization and they have all the biases that we have when we treat in our day-to-day -day life. In fact, if we have good enough registries and they are difficult to build because you need to have the right balance between enough information, but not too much information because otherwise we don't get it all. If we have a good data collection and if we have enough participants, it can bring very, very important information. And we see large collaborative projects such as Harmony, which are really based on this concept of the registry, which are providing more and more data on patients. So um, I, I think this in the future, I don't know what you think, Connie, but in the future, this is going to become an important resource for decision-making. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, decide that we can learn a lot from these registry data and registry trials. I think it's it's they becoming more and more attention also by the legal authorities because they can be used as a standard comparator um, in, in particular with regard to approval of novel drugs. And I think this is this, this data can, can help, can contribute as, um, as historical controls and they can um, accelerate the access of novel drugs um, uh, by the regulatory um, authorities. So um, what are the, the key challenges for IITs and <clears throat> the pharma-sponsored trials? So let, let's start again with the IITs and the challenges for the principal investigator. So I think one major issue is to, to get the IIT sufficiently funded. And IITs are often underfunded, which is um, clearly reflected by the discrepancy between the budget and the outstanding study concept that is very complex. And, and what are the reasons <clears throat> for this? So um, I think one reason is 
the limited knowledge of the required budget by the PI or the study team. Um, I think it is important to calculate the costs for the planned trial prior initializing any negotiations and together with all the stakeholders and involved parties. And the budget should be set before um, contact with the farmer takes place. And the budget must consider all essential issues such as the personal costs for the study team, the costs for the CRO, submission costs such as invoices from ethic committees or authorities, costs for statistics or laboratory. And here, I think it is helpful to already have a standardized um, catalog for costs available. And, and just to give you a rough idea, the current costs for a new IIT um, range uh, between around, I would say, 15,000 to 20,000 euro uh, per patient, depending on the study concept. And apart from funding by pharma, there is, um, as I already mentioned, hardly any public funding that fully covers the costs for a clinical study. And this is also true for the register studies. So it, it, I think it would be a definite improvement to have more financial support from public funding for the clinical trials in the future. What, what, what do you think, Antonio? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the more diversified the funding is, the more we are able to have IITs, but also have novel ways of collaborating, of teaming up with pharma so that we can have uh, IITs that have multiple funding and that we can actually link in. Um, because it's not just in IITs that we have challenge. A, a big challenge in dealing with trials is dealing with all the contracting hurdles, which include the contracts that we have with farmers, with CROs, and contracting takes a long, long time. I mean, I don't know what your experience in, in, um, in Germany is, but here in Portugal, sometimes we have, it takes about six months to get the contract up and running, which means that by the, by the time we are opening for patients, a lot of other centers have already opened. And when we have competitive trials that have a determined timeline, we get lagged behind. These contracts are often very extensive, very complex, and the legal departments, both from the investigator side and from the pharma side, have very different visions of the aspects, such as the patents, the intellectual properties, or the inventions. The other big disadvantage is that in most clinical studies, there is no standardized contract template on either side. Um, and having no template means that we have long discussions about items that end up by not being relevant to the study. And the fact that any modified contract must be checked each time. And nowadays with the increased legality of everything that we do, it does end up by taking a long, long time. I absolutely agree. I mean, these, these contract hurdles, I, I just can say from my experience here in Germany, that we have, we, we do have really long, long discussions going back and forward um, beside our legal department, beside, beside um, the pharma company and, and what, what we would like to have. And this is a never ending story, story sometimes. And this is really um, 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 not very efficient, in particular with regard to these really innovative and novel drugs coming up, you are running behind all the developments if you are hampered by your <clears throat> contract times. This is really a big issue. Yes, absolutely. And especially when us from the medical point of view fail to understand for one reason or another, the 
minutia that are being discussed. And so it just becomes very difficult and frustrating. We just want to give forward. Um, but there are, there are other regulatory demands that we need to consider. And regulatory demands are also a big challenge. Um, they include the excessive requirements that can differ from country to country. And the paperwork can get just so enormous, just to mention the protocol content, the informed consent, and the scope of the submission doc documents. Very often to handle this, we need experienced staff and an experienced pro efficient processes, you know, standard operating procedures. In the case of multinational studies, the regulatory requirements can be significantly different from country to country. And here it is important to have a highly experienced studies team that needs, knows exactly what is needed, and which documents have to be submitted in the necessary form. On the 31st of January this year, there was a new EU regulation, which is 536-2014. And the aim of this regulation was to harmonize the submission and assessment of the monitoring process for clinical trials in Europe. There's a one-year transition period to establish this new regulation, and ongoing studies are being transferred to this new regulation within three years. So new studies had to comply immediately. Ongoing studies had to transfer within three years. And the new submission process will be changed both for IITs, in particular with regard to the strict timelines, and to adjust with the previous processes accordingly, and to address all the queries from both sides, both IIT sponsors and pharma, on a very, very short notice. So bureaucracy is quite a big challenge and a big hurdle, both for pharma and for IIT trials. So interventional trials really have to come up with this hurdle. And we at EHA have a big initiative to reduce bureaucracy in clinical trials. And we really recommend that you listen to the podcast presented by Professor Martin Drayling, which is also available on our EHA campus about reducing bureaucracy and how we recommend this should be done. Yeah, this would be a very first and very important step in, in facilitating um, in particular IIT trials that are very important for our patients. And let's see what the new European regulation brings. I, I think it's still a very um, tough um, challenge because of the strict timelines. And <clears throat> we still have the discussions between um, the sponsor of the IIT and the pharma. And as I said, it's, it's often very long discussions. So we have to stick to the timelines and I'm looking forward um, how this will work um, within the next months. So uh, let's talk about um, another challenge, and this is how, how could we identify patients and, and colleagues um, to refer the patients to the study center? I think this is also an, an, an issue we should um, briefly discuss. And this is in particular relevant if, if, if there are a small number of sites in different regions of a country or in case of very small sites with a lack of the necessary infrastructure. And in these smaller, less experienced centers, the flow of information about the ongoing studies and the personal stuff is, is lower, resulting in, in fewer patients being included. And I think it is very important that for the identification of patients for clinical studies um, to present and discuss these novel study concepts on a, on a more or less regular basis, for example, in the regular board meetings. And in addition, um, one also has uh, to keep in mind that referral of patients to the study site 
might be hampered by the fact that the colleagues may worry about losing their patients or are not well informed about the study concepts available. So it's very important to get them involved and get them informed. And finally, <clears throat> one also has to mention the challenge to get the necessary infrastructure in place. And here, um, multidisciplinary teams are needed and these teams um, have to be trained with GCP training on a regular basis. And in addition, um, other departments often need to be involved, such as the radiology, the pharmacy, or the pathology. And providing and maintaining such an infrastructure can be an issue for some, in particular, the smaller centers. Yes, and I think, you know, all these things that you mentioned really bring home the importance of reducing bureaucracy and simplifying without in any way compromising patient safety, of course, but we do need to simplify the bureaucracy to enable more things to come. And probably the same comes about for challenges in pharma-sponsored trials. Now, one of the main issues here is that pharma-sponsored trials have a fixed budget. And this budget is usually not flexible. There's no room for negotiation. It does not address the fact that different countries have different site budgets and requirements. And that in many studies, this budget does not cover all the relevant costs, such as a startup fee, screening costs, personnel, equipment, assessments, etc. And often these, this budget will only pay for patients that are included or for the visits of the patient. So all the work that happens before starting, before including patients, and all the work that happens afterwards in the background is not accounted for in the budget. And it can often be very, very high workload. Another important issue is that pharma-sponsored trials have a fixed and finalized protocol. And Constance has already mentioned this, which is that the investigators, even the principal investigators, even those in trial steering committees have very little influence in the design options or the study concept. The study is very much presented to us as it is. And it's particularly true for the study objectives and endpoints but also for the study visits, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, and the whole study procedures. Um, and obviously this has a reason, and the main reason is that these studies are designed to get drugs out there and get us to use the drugs, which is very important, but it does exclude the academic and the clinical investigators from the design. Finally, there's another issue is that some pharma studies, in some of them, the examinations deviate from what we do routinely. So pharmacokinetic sampling is something we do not routinely do and implies a lot of bloodletting, which results in additional person costs, additional effort to the patient, and sometimes additional equipment. And also the participating center has to make sure that they have provided access to a large number of different electronic systems, such as ECRF, IWRS, um, and all the other form-filling systems that are there. So actually the requirements for the centers are quite heavy and, and it is difficult, even if we consider that most pharma studies are designed by pharma and a lot of the regulation is dealt by with them, it still is difficult for many studies to be able to participate. But it's not just doctors that have challenges for, for trials, is it, Francis? Yeah, I think that one important point, and, and you mentioned this quite nicely, 
for me personally is also that that the concept is is fixed the concept is is, is ready to go the protocol is is finalized at the moment when we were contacted and i mean we are experienced in in some of the diseases and when we are interested in participating in a clinical trial i think it would be good also to have the input from from the from the clinicians from the people who are seeing the patients and and for some of the concepts um, you really have problems to to understand what what is behind it or even the inclusion or exclusion criteria where you could see it is it might become very difficult to, to include a patient and here i would really wish that we as academic persons as the physicians the clinicians that we get much um, earlier involved in in this concept um, um, design um, this is i think very important but there are also challenges for the patients <laughs> so for the patients um, i think it is sometimes really difficult to get the important information um, regarding treatment and the study um, options. So in the, in the daily routine, um, it is sometimes really difficult to explain the study concept in, in detail and to answer all the questions in a, in a very satisfa um, satisfactory manner. Um, and another challenge for the patients is that um, the study sites are not always local um, and frequent study visits and invasive examinations are burdensome for the patient. So it is difficult to organize their visits by themselves and which is in particular true for the older patients or the more fragile patients. This is really a challenge for the patients. And <clears throat> I think another very important issue is or challenge is the extensive information patients get when they participate in a study. Um, so the patient informed consent is complex and often 20 to 30 size, pages in size and it covers all different types of information including data protection, adverse reactions and other relevant details for the patient are not always adequately addressed or explained and reading all these necessary documents and providing a large number of signatures is, I think, very demanding and sometimes really overwhelming um, for the patient. Yeah, no, I, and certainly, I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges is to inform the patient adequately and yet to overcome this avalanche of information that they get. And, and you know, that is one of the things that I, every time I talk to a patient about the trials, patients feel that either they don't want to read it and say they trust me and that's it but I don't think that is the correct procedure either or they get so bogged down that they they lose it there and, and needs a lot of explanation so that does is a big challenge for patients so having tackled all these challenges how can clinical trial processes and all these challenges be improved well, obviously, I think the first point would be cost. One important point to reduce the cost of clinical studies is the establishment of processes that are efficient as possible. These include a functioning IT infrastructure with highly qualified, well-trained personnel. This is critical. And in addition to this, standardization of individual processes would not only be efficient for the implementation of the trial itself, but it would also save costs, mainly on the personnel side. In addition, costs can be reduced by working together in study groups, such as Constance has done in Germany, and collaboration groups share the work 
and make it much more efficient. This is especially true for national and international groups, I would say, with different countries participating. And there are lots of existing experiences with local infrastructure and common infrastructures that can be used. So this is very important that we optimize our resources. But in addition to this, we need to also streamline regulatory administration. I think we all find, all of us who work in trials, that the main hurdle that we need to cover is regulation and bureaucracy. And as we've already mentioned, contracting takes far too much time. And most of it doesn't really make sense to us as doctors. And this process could really be improved by implementing standardized contract templates on both sides, both institutions and pharma. And to define a central budget catalog, which would really facilitate and accelerate the process of contract and budget negotiations. In addition, there are efforts to do this on a European level. On January 20, 31st this year, a new regulation came into effect, as I've mentioned, 536-2014. And the aim of it is to harmonize the submission and evaluation in the monitoring process in Europe for all clinical studies. Based on this new regulation, only one central submission for the clinical study would be necessary, independently of how many countries participate in the study. All these processes could run centrally via a portal, the CTIS, and so far, several working groups have already been established that focus on the simplification of the new regulation requirements, such as working group in EHA. And the future will show how harmonized and feasible these new processes will be. EHA, as I've said, is involved in facilitating these processes within clinical studies. We have different working groups coordinated by EHA that have been defined to cooperate with different authorities, European Medical Association, um, medical agency, uh, FDA, to work on the harmonization of the clinical studies. The main topics are how to reduce bureaucracy in clinical trials, and in particular, how to improve the stru and structure the flow of safety reports, how to create a readable and understandable informed consent, and how to facilitate regulatory framework for clinical trials. As we already mentioned, if you are further interested in how EHA contributes to these topics at a European level, please listen to Professor Martin Drayling's podcast available on the EHA campus because it really does shed light on how these things are being tackled. Yeah, streamlining of the regulatory administration, I think is a major issue. And I hope that we, with the help of the, the different working groups and with the initiative of EHA that we will can, um, uh, move uh, much faster forward to reach um, <clears throat> to reach these goals. So, how could we improve the experience of our patients? I think this is another important aspect that we um, have to discuss and and and, and consider. Um, I, I think it is very important to reach the patient uh, by providing an easy access to study information, which is understandable um, via the site's homepage or the internet or um, registries, or, and I think this is a very important group, the patient advocacy group. They are well informed and they are well connected. And it's really important that we as um, um, trials initiators or, 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 or participating in clinical trials 
are well connected with the patient advocacy groups and keep them informed and are in, that we are in contact with these groups. So the acceptance for participation in the study can be um, clearly increased by making um, the appointments, the study visits as pleasant as possible. And here the establishment of specialized study units um, is very helpful um, with experienced and highly qualified um, personnel. Um, short waiting times, I think is a very important aspect and a pleasant ambience and the minimization of extensive assessments and study visits. Complex procedures um, such as the electronic diaries and the questionnaires, they should be avoided. And at the moment, we have the impression that, that these, are, that the, that these um, tools are increasing. And if there are electronic diaries or questionnaires, um, the patient should get support um, by, the, by, by the staff for the use of these digital documentation forms. As already mentioned and discussed, um, another important issue is the patient-informed consent, which is very extensive with a lot of pages providing a lot of information that is often not understandable and readable for the patient. And here, more effort should be put into preparing and designing these ICFs. And as already mentioned, this is one task of EHA's working groups on reducing bureaucracy. And here also close cooperation with the ethics committee is needed. And maybe the development of a kind of standard ICF would be very helpful. And finally, um, the travel costs should be discussed and they should be reimbursed regularly for the patients. And in particular for patients who live far away from the study site um, and if frequent visits are necessary, um, reimbursement also for overnight stays, um, the so-called clinic hotels should be performed. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is very important because clinical trials really rely on the generosity of patients and their families participating and of risking in some ways the, the participation for the advancement of, um, of science. And so it, we do need to make their experience as you know, as best as possible, as we need to make investigator experience good, because investigators also need to deviate from their standard practice to participate in trials. And, um, you know, in lots of conversations I've had about this, many people, they were quite skeptical because they feel that a lot of this bureaucracy is here to stay. But I think we've learned from the COVID trials that this, these improvements, these changes can be done very quickly. Um, and, and the COVID trials have taught us quite a lot. First of all, if we look at what differed in COVID trials from a normal trial procedure. Well, most of these COVID trials have been developed very quickly, including the study protocol, financial support, and also the regulatory requirements. The studies were designed as emergency studies, and the concept is based on the observations or on preclinical studies. And during the pandemic, many processes were prioritized, like for example, the processing of contracts by legal departments, submission and reviewing by ethics committees and authorities. Here, for example, notes added to positive votes, approvals, allowing the processes in parallel and ongoing study could be mentioned. So everything was happening at the same time with improvements. So in general, 
it was common that you have to first address all the conditions before getting a positive vote and a positive approval. What were the pros of this sort of fast track uh, improving bureaucracy system? Well, the pandemic clearly demonstrated that in particular, the regulatory startup processes can really be reduced and facilitated. And I don't think that this was just because it was a global pandemic and because we were in emergency status. It really shows that we can reduce the bureaucracy for startup processes. It is not necessary that it is so burdensome. And in addition, these studies have also shown that the entire process can be accelerated and simplified without really jeopardizing patient safety at all and maintaining data integrity. And they also showed that the fast approval of novel drugs, in this case, vaccines, was feasible. But, you know, it's not all a sea of roses, Constance. What, what do you think yeah. about these procedures? Yeah, no, I, I was really impressed by, by the way these um, um, emergency studies um, um, were facilitated by all the different processes that are normally needed. And I think it was really good that we that we had these um, accelerated processes allowing us to include patients in, um, in these emergency trials and offer them um, novel drugs without um, jeopardizing the patient's safety. I, I, I think this was a very impressive experience. But as you said, there, there, there might be also some cons or some caution. And um, I think we also have to discuss on, on these um, cons. Um, since in some of the studies, I had the impression that the underlying data situation was not as solid as in the classical studies, um, having a phase one or a phase two study in place to generate a lot of um, data and sufficient dosing and safety data first. And due to the extremely fast setup, um, the study details such as requirement assessments or standardized data collection were not well thought out which resulted in some administrative hurdles, but also, and this is, I think, very um, important, in the limitations in performing a meaningful analysis. And since relevant data were missing and the data were of um, then a limited quality and comparability, the initial observation or the hypothesis um, could not be confirmed or fully confirmed or reproduced. And, and we know that missing data could not be generated um, in a retrospective manner. However, the, the COVID studies nicely show the difference between an emergency study and a classical clinical trial and the contrast between the ability to act very quickly versus the extensive bureaucratic effort. And I think it will be important for the future to find a kind of balance between simplifying bureaucratic processes and ensuring a high level of patient safety and data integrity at the same time. I think this is um, what we aim for in the future. Absolutely. And I think certainly there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think we've probably, uh, hopefully, hit the end of the road of this very high bureaucracy. And now we're starting to step back and reach a balance. So perhaps we can conclude a little bit on this podcast as we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I think in conclusion, what I would like to say is talk a little bit about what would be the benefits of improved trial processes. I think that for PIs, for investigators, the greatest benefit 
would be to achieve a greater efficiency and accelerated setup of the clinical trials through a harmonized and standardized study process, as well as through the efficient use of limited financial and personnel resources. In addition, the availability of getting public funding would really significantly contribute to conduct clinical trials. For pharma, one main benefit would be to reduce the costs, but also to increase the acceptance and the feasibility of clinical trials by involving trial sites much earlier during the process, in particularly with regard to protocol development. This could really improve recruitment rate, reduce the number of protocol deviations, and also have a more applicable approval of the drug than sometimes we do have in terms of CRMs. Finally, by facilitating the study procedures for the sites and the patients will result a higher acceptance and faster execution of the study. So there are huge advantages to implementing these new processes and simplifying the process. Absolutely right. And, and we should also, uh, there should also be a benefit for the patients. And the, the, the trial processes that can be improved and that we have discussed and that you mentioned um, you would allow an earlier access to relevant information on clinical trials and thus a better understanding of the study concept, but also an improved integration into patients' everyday life. I think this is very important. Mm -hmm. And the final goal is um, to enable and simplif simplify a faster access to novel treatment options that have the potential to improve the outcome of the patients. So I think we are at the end now. Antonio, I hope we, um, that we could give you um, a broad overview on the challenges of clinical trials and what can be done to address, improve these challenges in the future. And we would like to thank you um, for listening and hope to see you again, um, maybe on EHA uh, platforms or campus or uh, wherever we and you are active. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening. It was a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you, Antonio. It was a pleasure for me.